Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be back. I thank you for your prayers during my vacation. And I did miss you, in case you were wondering. It was good to be home. This Sunday, we have this, this beautiful opportunity to celebrate the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of Christ, Corpus Christi, as we traditionally call it, which, of course, is just Latin for body of Christ. But this solemnity is very important for us because, as we know, the church has always taught that the Eucharist is what we call the source and the summit of our faith. So the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist is the source and the summit of our faith. And of course, source and summit means our faith flows from the Eucharist, from the body of Christ, and it goes back to the body of Christ. It begins and ends with Jesus. That's the teaching, right? You've heard that he is the alpha and the omega. That's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. He is the source and the summit. And since the Eucharist is his real presence and Jesus is the source and the summit, then the Eucharist is the source in the summit. It's the beginning and end of our faith. All other sacraments lead from the Eucharist and to the Eucharist because it is the real presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. We know this to be true because this is what he taught. The church gives us at least a small segment from this teaching in the Gospel of John today. If you really want to Focus on that, just read chapter six, where Jesus clearly lays out his real presence. The fact that we, if we're gonna be his disciples, we need to eat his body and drink his blood. Now, many Christians oftentimes think he's just speaking like metaphorically or analogously or symbolically, okay? Like, Jesus didn't mean literally eat my body and blood. The problem is the language of the text in its earliest sources in its original language, the word Jesus uses to these Jews, well, in Latin it would be translated as masticare, which means to physically chew and swallow. Jesus was telling the Jews, you actually have to physically eat my body and drink my blood if you want to have life in you. That's why at the end of this passage, many of the Jews and many of his disciples turned their back on him, said, this is a hard teaching, we can't accept this, and they left him. And Jesus turned to Peter and the other 11, and he said, are you going to leave me too? And what was Peter's response? He kind of put his hands up and he said, Lord, where else can we go? Only you have the words of everlasting life. Meaning, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I trust you. The apostles themselves did not understand this teaching until the Last Supper when Jesus took the bread and he took the wine. And with his power as God, he said, this is my body, this is my blood, the first consecration. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, then that's just symbolic. But since he's God, every good Jew knows that when God says something, it happens. When he created the universe, he simply spoke and it came into being. He is the creative force. So if he takes bread and says, this is my body, guess what? It's not bread anymore. If he takes wine and says, this is my blood, it's not wine. It has been transformed or transubstantiated, as we say. The substance has changed. 
That's why we as Christians have always believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. The scriptures are clear on this, and the tradition has always maintained it. But Jesus says very clearly in the gospel, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Why is this so essential for our lives? Obviously, there are probably many, many people throughout the world who never receive Holy Communion, and they're still alive, right? I mean, they're still living. They're not dropping dead like flies. What is Jesus talking about? He was obviously not talking about physical life. Physical life is sustained by merely physical food. Jesus is talking about the divine life he has given you in baptism. That divine life, that spark of divinity that now lives in you, the Holy Spirit, will die in you if you don't feed it. And the only food that nourishes that divine life is my body and blood. We know this has to be true for one very simple reason, is that the rules that govern all of reality govern both the physical universe and the immaterial or the spiritual universe. It's the same set of rules. I like to talk about this a lot because people don't always consider it. There aren't different rules for physics than there are for spirits. So the rules that govern your body, these principles of nature that you live by, even if you don't think about them, also govern your soul. One simply does it on a physical level, one does it on a spiritual level. Let me explain this way. Since the church is the body of Christ, it's a real body, isn't it? which means it works, it functions, it lives and it survives like a real body. And there's something very important about a living body in this world. If you don't feed it, it dies. So spiritually, if this spiritual body is not being fed, it dies. In fact, all of the sacraments correspond to one of the seven needs of living beings. And the first, of course, is birth. I always like to remind people this with their babies. You know, an unborn baby, as, as real human being as it may be in the womb, has no relationship with its parents. It's just a little human growing in there. I mean, you can talk to them and sing to them and all that, but they're not responding to you. Until that baby is born into the world, you can love them, but you can't relate to them. Because a relationship is an exchange between at least two persons. So it's not possible. That's why birth is necessary for relationships. If that's true in regards to our physical existence in the world, it's also true in regards to our spiritual existence. So if you want a relationship with God, which is a spiritual relationship, you have to be born into his spiritual family. Same reasoning, same law, same rule. If you have to be born physically within a family to have a relationship with that family, you have to be born spiritually into a family to have a relationship with that family. And so baptism is the first sacrament. You have to be born first. But what does every mother tell you? What's the first thing that baby needs after being born? What's the first thing it wants? It wants milk. It wants food. The first thing it wants is food. And then you have to feed it frequently and often many times a day and night, 
just so that it stays alive. Birth cannot maintain life on its own. Therefore, baptism is not enough on its own. It was never meant to be enough. It is merely the first step to divine life. That's why Jesus taught so clearly, not only do you have to be baptized to go to heaven, but you have to eat my body and drink my blood, or otherwise the life in you that you received at baptism will die. Now, what's the third thing that happens? Or second, I guess. Second thing that happens right after the baby is born and you feed them. You usually need to change them fairly quickly, right? So there's a little waste that needs to be disposed of properly. Did you know that there's a sacrament for that too? Confession. Reconciliation. Sorry, you get messy in life, but it's not a physical mess. It's a spiritual mess on your soul. We call it sin. So Jesus gave us a sacrament to change your dirty diapers. That's what it is. All of the sacraments correspond to the needs of every human life, both physically and sacramentally, spiritually. That's why they're all present. But the Eucharist for us, we know, is the source and the summit, the beginning and the end, the most important of all seven. And so our belief and our fidelity to the real presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament makes or breaks someone's faith. If you're not eating my body and drinking my blood, the Lord says to you, you have no life in you. You will spiritually die because you'll spiritually starve. That's why this teaching is so important. The Eucharist is our life. And right now, if you think about it, Jesus, the same Jesus that walked the earth 2,000 years ago, that died on the cross and rose from the dead, is now in this tabernacle, really, truly present. And if you believe this, if you truly believe this, what a difference it makes in your life. You see, as Catholics, intellectually we know, we believe, that the Eucharist is the real presence. But how deeply does that change our attitudes and our beliefs and our actions and reactions to things? More often than not, the real presence of Jesus is one of the last things we think about in our daily life. Usually when you get really good news, something wonderful happens, what's your first thought? I wanna share it with somebody, right? And usually you wanna share it with the person you feel closest to, whoever that may be. Siblings, friends, spouses. But if Jesus is the greatest love of your life, and he's actually physically here in this little gold box at St. Dorothy's in Lincolnton in Lincoln County, why don't you come and see him and talk to him about it? Tell him, thank him. And when you're having problems in your life, and you're trying to, to deal with them, is he the first one you think about? The first one you want to go to and receive not only advice, but consolation. Now, as a priest, I have the opportunity to keep the Blessed Sacrament in my house. So I get to have a chapel and reserve the Blessed Sacrament. It's a really wonderful honor. The bishop obviously grants his priests. So I have had the Eucharist in my house forever, like for a long, long time. What happens usually with these relationships, even though I obviously believe in the real presence, 
consecrated my life to Jesus, for, you, know, you can imagine. But there's a certain casual nature that develops over time. You just get used to him being around. Even I, as a priest, this happens to. And so there was a rule I made for myself years ago, and it became very helpful for me personally. And the rule was this, if Jesus is really present in that tabernacle at my house, then any time I leave the house or any time I return to the house, you'd think out of mere respect, I should stop in and say hello. Now you'd think, well, yeah, Father, you should always be doing that. Yeah, but I, was, I never thought about it. It's just something, I know he's there. I've got stuff to do. Here is Jesus sitting there in that room 24-7. And if the greatest love of your life was in a room in your house and they couldn't leave, you had to go to them, what would you do? So the rule is every time I leave the house, the last thing I have to do is stop in the chapel, genuflect, say goodbye to the Lord. Even when I'm coming here to the church, I usually genuflect and say, see you in a minute, Jesus, and then, and then leave and come here and say, hey, hey, Jesus, how you doing? And then when I get home, one of the first things I try to do is go to the chapel, genuflect and say hello to the Lord. Now, sometimes the cats get me first, you know, I can feed the cats or something like that, but Jesus knows, I just, I get there as quick as I can. And that's a small practice I, I try to keep up just to remind me day in and day out that he is really present. Because it's very easy for us as Catholics to not allow that truth to impact our lives. Now, everything I've, I've mentioned up to this point was really just to set the stage for the homily. Now, let me explain. So I've been getting some complaints lately that my homilies are too short. Don't worry, I'll, I'll make up for it today. I don't know if they were complaints, but they were notes. So the main focus for me is our first reading from the book of Deuteronomy. And these are the words of Moses given to the Israelites after they have passed through the desert for 40 years. Moses said to the people, remember how for 40 years now the Lord your God has directed all your journeying in the desert. Now, as I read this to you again, I'm going to translate it into your language, according to the saints and the fathers in the church, okay? So remember how for 40 years now, the Lord your God has directed all your journeying in the desert. So the desert in the 40 years represents a lifetime for any human being who's following Christ. So it's talking about your lives. So the Lord is saying to you, Remember how for your life, I have directed all your journeys. I have done this. Why has he done this? Moses says, so as to test you by affliction. God tests you by affliction. Affliction means any type of suffering or cross that you must endure regardless of the reason. That's how God tests you. He intentionally leads you through your life and tests you by affliction. What is he testing for? He tests you by affliction to find out whether or not it is your intention to keep his commandments. Do you know why that's important? 
I say this all the time because it's so true. For each one of us, we have this very bad habit of saying, I'm usually a good person, but this happened and, that, and then I behaved badly. The problem is that that's not true. The saints are very clear. How I behave, act, react, under affliction, under suffering, is my true self. The rest of the time is just a mask. It's not the real me. So next time you're tempted to say that to somebody, say, I usually pretend to be a good person, but <laughs> this is what happened. Affliction brings out our true selves. God already knows how we're going to respond. He doesn't need to test us for his sake. He tests us for our sake. You see, I'm ignorant. I don't know myself. I don't really know who I am. I'm so delusional, I think I'm a better person than I actually am. And only when I'm afflicted does my true self come out. And I may think I'm great, like I've been doing well for a long time, I haven't said any bad words, haven't punched anybody in the face, like I'm doing great. But you push me to that extreme, you test me just the right amount, and then what happens? I lose it. I, I won't really punch you in the face or anything, I'm just hypothetical. That's the point of affliction. God is testing you so that you know who you are, so that you know whether you actually follow his commandments or not. Because it's easy to follow the commandments when things are going well for us. That's basically meaningless. I mean, how many children are at least far more willing to do whatever their parents say when they get everything they ask for, whenever they ask for it? But you deny them simply one thing, they throw a temper tantrum. So God has been testing us throughout our lives with affliction so that we find out how faithful we are to him, whether we follow his commands or not. He, God, therefore, let you be afflicted with hunger, and then he fed you with manna, a food unknown to your, you and your fathers, in order to show you that not by bread alone does one live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. This is the most important part of Moses' teaching. And you'll miss it if you don't realize what he's saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying through him. God intentionally afflicts you with hunger then he feeds you with manna, the manna in the desert, which was the ancient symbol or sign of the Eucharist, a food unknown to you and your fathers, in order to show you that not by bread alone does one live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. We do not live by earthly food. That's not the life that's important to us. That's only physical life. We live, according to Moses, by the word of God. The word of God gives us life. And we, as Catholics, know something Moses didn't know those thousands of years ago. We know that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know that that living word left his real presence under the form 
of bread. You see, Moses was prophesying, and he didn't even know it. He was prophesying that the word of God which nourishes you will become food for you. As he did in the Eucharist. And then lastly, Moses says to the people, do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to that place of slavery, who guided you through the vast and terrible desert with its seraph serpents and scorpions, its parched and waterless ground, who brought forth water for you from the flinty rock and fed you in the desert with manna, a food unknown to your fathers. So what is Moses telling each one of us? Don't forget the Lord. See, I think this is one of our major problems as believers. When push comes to shove in the midst of our afflictions, we forget about God. We forget about Jesus Christ in his real presence here in this tabernacle and in every Catholic church in the world. We forget about him. Oftentimes, he's the last one we think about. We've kind of exhausted every other effort we've made to resolve our problems or fix our issues. And then we're like, well, I might as well go to church. <laughs> Nothing else worked. That is horrible. That is a terrible way of thinking. Don't forget the real presence of the Lord. He is our salvation. He is our hope. He is our nourishment. Now, even for those of you who strive to have a good relationship with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, there's still another temptation you often have, which is this. I come to church, I try to spend time with the Blessed Sacrament when I can, but I just don't get much out of it, right? I mean, he's just, I mean, nothing really happens. I sit there and I say my prayers, but, you know, I don't hear him. He doesn't say anything. Now, this is one of the challenges that the saints themselves talk about, the silence of God, how quiet he is, especially when we want him to speak. The only answer I have to this, the only answer is that from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. I thought it would be good to end the homily with a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. If you don't know the Chronicles of Narnia, you have to read them. You can read them to your children, but they're still great books as adults. And in this series, if you're not familiar, C.S. Lewis basically wrote a fictional tale about Jesus Christ in another dimension. I know that sounds more science fiction. It's not science fiction, it's just fiction. So, so basically, just look it up. The character Aslan, who's the king of beasts, this lion in this other dimensional reality, which these human children get to by magic rings in a magic wardrobe, it's, it's a long story. So is actually Jesus, he's just in another dimension. So on earth, in this universe, he's human. In that universe, he's a lion, okay? Talking big lion who's king of kings and lord of lords. So at the end of the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, after helping them conquer the white witch, you know, is basically the devil, and is going away, he's leaving. And these children, 
are, are devastated. They've come to know and love him and trust him. And they're like, why, why is he leaving? And Mr. Tumnus says, well, he, he's got other lands that he has to take care of, other peoples who need him. And then he reminds Lucy, this little girl, probably loves Aslan more than anyone else. He reminds Lucy of something very important in regards to Aslan, who is, as we know, Jesus Christ. He said, you must remember, he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. I always loved those words from C.S. Lewis because it reminded me, as it should remind you, Jesus Christ is not a tamed God. He's not your pet. He doesn't sit and stay and roll over when you ask him to. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why you come before his throne when you have a request, and that's why he decides what the answer will be. And you accept it. Yes, sir, may I have another? That's your proper response. Don't make the mistake that just because he loves you so much and he's so merciful and patient that he is tame. He wants you to come before him and he wants you to present your fears, your concerns, your hopes, and your dreams. But he also requires that you follow his word, whether you want to or not. It's still his way or the highway. Highway to hell, by the way, if that's what you're thinking of. So, so yes, come to him. Allow his real presence to affect the way you think and the way you act in your lives in a new and better way. But don't assume that just because you have this opportunity to have such an intimate relationship with the King of Kings, that he is under your thumb. There's this tension as Catholics that we must constantly hold in its absolute terror and fear of God and such trust and gentleness and intimacy with him. It's not one or the other, it's both, both and. This is the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. This is the source and the summit of our faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.